You're listening to Season 5 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 5.5, Things Never Go Wrong. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm podcasting instead of engaging with bad takes on Twitter. If you're wondering which ones I think are the bad ones, just assume that I disagree with whoever you disagree with. And I'm Nina, new to War in the Pocket, and Tom likes having someone around who knows less than he does about Gundam, so I better not burn out, okay? Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 615 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters. No one new this week! Ah! I hate when that happens! If you enjoy MSB, consider making a one-time contribution on Ko-fi or becoming a subscriber on Patreon. We are a team of just two people, and MSB is our full-time job. Researching, writing, recording, editing, mixing, promotion, graphic design, accounting, social media. Your support is what keeps the lights on and keeps this project going. A quick note before we get into the episode... A couple episodes ago, we mentioned that we had read or heard somewhere the U.S. soldiers fighting in Vietnam passed through Japan pretty frequently, in transit, on R&R, etc. Listener Eric O. wrote in to confirm for us. It turns out that his father, who is a Vietnam War veteran, was sent to Japan for medical treatment and recovery after he was wounded. Confirmation. Yay. (laughs) Thanks, Eric. This week we are covering Poketo no Naka no Senso, Episode 4, Kawa o Watate Kodachi o Nukete, or War in the Pocket, Episode 4, Over the River and Through the Woods. Storyboards for this episode were handled by overall director Takeyama Fumihiko. The episode director was Yokoyama Hiroyuki, who also directed Episode 2. Likewise, the credited animation director was Kubooka Toshiyuki, also returning to a role he handled on Episode 2. I'd like to note that this episode does feature a noteworthy cameo. Al's teacher, who I think says one line, is voiced by Sakakibara Yoshiko, known to Gundam fans for her roles as Haman Karn in Zeta and Double Zeta, and Nanai Miguel in Char's Counterattack. This week, in lieu of research, we are joined by a new guest, Mateo of the blog Animetudes. Well, Mateo is only sort of new. He previously helped with research on the production staff behind Char's Counterattack, And this week, he joins us properly to discuss anime, animation, and animators in the late 80s, the context from which War in the Pocket emerged, the unique challenges and benefits of animating in this style, and the 23-year-old animator who rocketed to stardom as a result of his work on the show. All that after our talkback. But now, let's hear the recap.
While Al and Bernie infiltrate the Federation base, Garcia visits Pink Elephant, a local bar. His strange drink order is actually a code phrase. The bartender is a hacker. And this was the real plan for finding the Federation base. Their ally locates the hidden base, prints out old floor plans, and will provide them with disguises in a couple of days. It seems that Side 6 may not stay neutral for long. The local news is full of the back and forth between governments. That Zeon has violated the treaty again and refuses to apologize. That the Ria government has voted to bar Zeon ships from its colonies. Two guards approach Al's hiding place between the vending machines. He snaps a few more pictures before clambering up and over a pipe, then reuniting with Bernie once the guards have passed. At first, Bernie is angry that Al took off alone, but once he sees the pictures, he changes his tune. They sneak out and drive back to the warehouse. If Bernie was expecting praise, he is sorely disappointed. Garcia punches him in the face and goes on a tirade about how Bernie put them all at risk by deviating from his orders. Reprimand done, Bernie takes a sleeping Al home. Rather than try to sneak the boy into his dark, quiet house, Bernie sees lights on next door and takes Al to Chris's. She'll lie to Al's mom and say that he fell asleep while playing there. The Christmas season is in full swing, and Cyclops team's preparations take place against a backdrop of decorations and sparkling lights. Misha picks up tools and hides weapons. Garcia plants a bomb. At school, Al is caught off guard when his friends start repeating what they've heard from their parents and on the news. That Zeon are the enemy, the bad guys, scum. If he likes them, he must be scum too. He tries to argue, but only gets out of it when Dorothy tells them to leave him alone and go sit down. Class is about to start. Steiner meets their hacker contact, Charlie, in a park. It seems the two are old friends, and Charlie has a warning. All evidence points to Cyclops' team being sent as decoys, a distraction while the higher-ups pursue some other objective. I'd run if I were you. Steiner had guessed that they were never meant to succeed. He's even certain, now, that Zeon will lose the war. But he intends to carry out his mission as ordered. While the team make their final preparations, Al calls. Excitedly, he tells Bernie that Chris arranged for him to visit the Federation facility. He'll be able to get a better look around. But he's made his plans for the same day that the attack will occur. And Bernie warns him not to go, not to be anywhere near that place, though he doesn't explain why. Al stubbornly ignores the warning and goes to meet a doctor and research scientist in the public part of the facility. Steiner, Garcia, and Bernie cut their way through the tunnel doors under the building and enter disguised as Federation soldiers. Misha, acting as a decoy, takes out their mobile suit and marches it straight through a busy downtown street. Mobile workers, missile batteries, and helicopters deploy while nearby neighborhoods are evacuated. Misha picks up speed, scraping the ground as he flies low down the street and easily dodging missile fire. One of the missiles hits the school. Inside, Bernie and Steiner make small talk with a patrolling guard while in the next room, Garcia kills a couple of technicians. When the guard notices Bernie's accent and asks if he's from Australia, Bernie plays along, talking about how beautiful Sydney is this time of year, covered in snow. 
Alarms sound throughout the facility, and while the doctor is distracted, Al swipes his keycard and heads for the warehouse with the Alex. A ship launches and deploys a squad of mobile suits inside the colony, all of whom Misha shoots down. One crash lands into the city below, knocking out power for blocks in every direction. Bernie and Steiner are captured when the guard from earlier realizes Bernie was lying. This time of year is summer in Australia. But Garcia, who they don't realize is part of the same group, shoots down their captors. In the ensuing firefight, Steiner and Garcia are wounded, and Bernie drags Steiner, unconscious and bleeding heavily, to cover. Al finds his way back to the high, narrow window overlooking the warehouse, and watches. They won't be able to steal the Alex now. Garcia asks Bernie for cover fire, and makes a run for the mobile suit, bomb in hand. He is shot down on the scaffolding, and falls to the ground. Still conscious, he sets off the bomb. Under cover of the thick smoke and dust that fill the room, Bernie carries Steiner outside, and Chris arrives to fight or flee whatever is necessary to keep the Alex from falling into Zeon hands. Misha reaches the base, but his fight with Chris and the Alex is brief. The bombs he stashed don't even get through the Gundam's extra armor and his mobile suit is shot full of holes before he can get near enough to attack again. The bomb Garcia planted goes off, opening a hole in the exterior of the colony. After wandering out of the rubble and seeing most of the mobile suit fight, Al finds Bernie kneeling on the ground, holding his wounded captain. Bernie hears footsteps and whips his gun in their direction, and the two stare at each other, frozen the only sound, the air, leaving the colony. I'll be upfront right from the get-go that this is one of my favorite episodes in all of Gundam. Definitely one of the best ones, I think, that we've covered so far. So just, you know, keep that bias in mind <laughs> throughout this whole talk back. And I'm sure we'll talk about all the things that I like about it. It is a pretty incredible episode. Thank you for validating my feelings. Things could have gotten contentious. I strongly suspect we can't definitively answer this question until we've seen the whole series. But why set it during Christmas? A very good question. Part of it, I'm sure, is just that it happens at the end of the year, and so does Christmas. And, uh, you know, the Christmas setting feels very, like, it's visually interesting, it's emotionally resonant. It creates a sense of normalcy. It establishes, yet again, that this community exists outside of the war zones. And it allows them to do things like that just very momentary shot of the... Xeon blue mobile suit <laughs> moving past a window with a big Christmas tree in it and the juxtaposition of the head of this mobile suit with the you know bright lights of the Christmas tree and the wrapped presents underneath it. I mean, that's an extremely powerful visual. I think um, to make it easier to actually talk about this episode, we should just go ahead and acknowledge the name of this mobile suit. I was holding off on this because I wanted to wait until they said it, but they don't say it. Ha! 
I consulted with some Gundam experts on Twitter who have copies of transcripts for 0080's dialogue, and they never say it. In the whole show, they don't say it. Um, so this is the Kempfer. It's a German word that means person who fights. Okay. It's spelled with an A with umlauts over it, so it looks like it should be Kampfer, but I'm pretty sure the actual pronunciation is Kempfer. War in the Pocket continues to buck and subvert various Gundam trends, if we want to call it that, in that most of the really impressive fighting in this episode is between human people. The bulk of the mobile suit fighting is very brief, and even though it's quite impactful, even the big fight at the end is quite short, and not a whole lot actually happens. Mm. The really exciting parts of the fight between the Kempfer and the Federation mobile suits mostly happen off screen. They are left to our imaginations. And we have not seen this kind of like individual people without mobile suits gunfighting in a long time. There was like a little tiny bit of it in Zeta toward the beginning. And there was Rambaral's attack on the white base back mm -hmm. in like episode 20 of First Gundam that had something of this level of like guns shooting and blood spurting. We're going to try to avoid talking about the animation too much since we're getting into that in a lot more detail in our conversation with Mateo. But I just have to comment on how effectively they use minimal animation techniques in these scenes, how frenetic this gunfight feels, even though for big parts of it, there's almost no animation. <laughs> it's like a still with a pan across it for big chunks. But then in the moments when Steiner and Bernie are using hand-to-hand -hand against soldiers, we get these close-ups with a ton of detail that are really beautiful and precisely animated. And then we'll cut to these stills or almost stills and sort of back and forth in terms of level of detail and level of motion. Yeah, to imply the existence of motion that isn't actually there. The feeling of shock when the smoke dissipates and we see the Alex's extra armor fall off, but mm -hmm. the Alex is completely unharmed <laughs> from all of these bombs. The Kempfer completely outclasses everything that the local defense force and the local federation presence send against it. And then the Alex completely outclasses the Kempfer. They do a remarkable job throughout this episode of creating a feeling of desperation on both sides. Like normally you think of in a back and forth combat, the sense of desperation has to be one-sided. If one side is doing so badly, the other side must be doing well, right? But here, there are so many different moving parts, so many different elements, that everyone feels desperate the whole time. There's also so much setup and so much parallelism within the individual episode. Yeah. You know, I was just saying to you about one group's weaponry being outclassed by another, being outclassed by a different thing. This is almost the exact conversation Al has <laughs> with his classmates <laughs> about, well, gyms suck and the Xeon mobile suits are cooler, says Al, sounding like almost every Gundam fan I talk to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, to which someone else replies, well, 
Yeah, but the Gundam is the best mobile suit. It's defeated hundreds of Zaku. The Gundam is the coolest of all. <laughs> yeah. There's this whole setup that the, the Cyclops team is going into effectively a suicide mission, that they're not meant to succeed. And on top of that, Steiner doesn't even think Zeon is going to win. He, at this point, feels that the war has been lost. They're just fighting on until someone gets to the point of surrender. And what visual could possibly sum that up better than Misha drawing a blade and charging at the Alex? Person with sword or machine with sword charges into gunfire is a, a pretty old visual. Yeah. And for me, at least, carries heavy associations of doomed missions, of heroic last stands. And so whether Misha knew that the Alex had those guns or not, the visual it conveys to us as the audience, we receive this image of a swordsman charging directly into a machine gun. There is a, I think, intentional parallelism here between the way the Kempfer Alex fight plays out and the first episode of First Gundam when the original Gundam starts off lying on a truck. Mm -hmm. Amuro gets in, the Xeon pilot Gene shoots it with the machine gun, but the Gundam's armor is too strong, just like the Kempfer shooting the Alex with the shotgun, even down to the part where one of the Zaku charges at the Gundam or the Kempfer charges at the Alex, and even including the explosion tearing a hole in the side of the colony. It comes from a separate source, but so many of these key events from First Gundam are repeated here. Is this Chris's first real combat? I think so. That was my impression also. They make a point of including in the sound mixing her breathing, which sounds frightened. Not just frightened, also almost like straining. Mm -hmm. The exertion and adrenaline and fear of what is happening all together. And the way she stands over the ruin of the Kempfer at the end, like she's in shock, the same way Amuro did after his first kills in First Gundam. Another bit of foreshadowing in the episode, Misha explicitly toasts, we who are about to die. Uh, but Steiner flicks his cigarette off the side of the mobile suit, and the second time I watched this, it looks so much like one of the mobile suits that's been shot down, falling away to earth, mm. trailing smoke. The one that lands like in the middle of a residential district and just like we see all the power around it go out. Mm -hmm. Which I'm pretty sure was a gun cannon, by the way. It was a gun cannon mass production type. What? Which in my mind is a way cooler looking gun cannon, personally. <laughs> it's, I think it's the best of the gun cannons. Um, How many gun cannons are there? Definitely more than two. Uh, you mentioned Steiner knowing that this is a suicide mission. And in this episode, it becomes clear that Steiner has known since the beginning that this was a suicide mission. Since they assigned Bernie to his team, he has known that the brass did not expect him and his men to survive this one. Because he's having this, it's like a classic spy movie scene, right? The two men sitting on a park bench chatting and passing information and gear between them, which it's so good, this scene, the way it's drawn, so much of what is conveyed about their relationships and who they are as people. I mean, not to go on too long of a digression here, but just looking at the way they wear their shirts 
tells you so much about these two guys because they're both wearing white button-up shirts. They're quite different shirts though. And Steiner's is like starched, ironed, immaculately pressed. It looks really clean and crisp. And he's got breast pockets on both sides, which although it's a subtle detail, feels extremely military. Versus Charlie, the spy who runs the bar, um, who, you know, he's got his sleeves rolled up, he's wearing no tie, his top button is unbuttoned, so you can see his undershirt. Um, you can see that the shirt is a little bit oversized because he had to buy a larger shirt to fit his belly. That's such good character design for these guys. And their brief conversation conveys so much about their relationship to each other. Uh, it's, it's great. Anyway, despite Steiner knowing that this is a suicide mission, when he's doing the little plan meeting with his team and Bernie asks like, oh, does that mean Misha is just like a decoy? They kind of lie to make Bernie feel better because they know he's just a kid in way over his head. And Bernie lies to Al in exactly the same way when he's like, yeah, we have a 50-50 chance of taking out a Gundam. No problem. No sweat. Charlie tells Steiner, if I were you, I would run. And Steiner can't. He makes this comment at the end of that scene where he says something like, this is a nice colony, isn't it? Or, you know, something along those lines. And I couldn't tell if he was envious because it's in such good shape and it's so wealthy compared to maybe where he's from. Or is he full of regret because he knows what they're going to do to this place? Like what is likely to happen to this colony when they launch their mission? Or if it's regret more that he can't just disappear into the colony and live there and pretend he was never in the Xeon army. Hmm. No comment. We still don't know what exactly they were a decoy for. That does not come out in this episode. Hmm. No comment. Moving along. <laughs> uh, you brought up first Gundam, so one quick note related to that. The ship that deploys inside the colony and from which a bunch of mobile suits launch is called the Grey Phantom, and I wondered if that was a reference to the fact that Tomino had originally wanted the white base to be grey. I personally think so. It's definitely a refined version of the white base. It looks a little less goofy, it looks a little more like a actual warship would look. Backtracking to some of the parallelism that we get in this episode and across what we've seen so far of War in the Pocket, we've noted basically since the beginning that the show is setting up a strong connection between Bernie and Al. We're meant to see the similarities between them in this episode after they get out of the Federation base with the photographs and they're laughing in Bernie's car. They have the exact same face, basically. <laughs> the same facial expression, the same mouth, eyes, laugh. And then at the very end, it's just like when they first met, Bernie pointing a gun at Al. Mm -hmm. And they again are wearing the same facial expression. They're both in shock, they're both scared, they're both sad. Shock more than anything else, I think. Yeah. That first instance you pointed to when they were in the car comes right after that conversation where Bernie says, oh, you're an optimist. You don't think anything's ever going to go wrong. And Al is just like, yep, uh-huh. Which, let me tell you, 
I don't know how it feels the first time you're watching the show, but the second time you're watching the show, that is a gut-wrenching discussion. And then when they're so excited to show this intelligence they've gathered to Steiner and the rest of the crew, and then it immediately shockingly cuts to Bernie getting punched in the face by Garcia. And like, it's a close up on Bernie's face and then just a fist coming from off screen. Um, that's just a microcosm of the episode, isn't it? All of this preparation and excitement about to do the thing that they've been trying to do since they got here. And then it all goes wrong. Everything. It's already been substantially undercut by the scene of Garcia going to Charlie's bar in the first place, which uh, pretty sure Pink Elephant is a reference to Dumbo. Probably. If you've never seen the Pink Elephant's song sequence of Dumbo, you should absolutely watch it. It's very trippy and weird. <laughs> but the point is that they already had a plan for how they were going to find this hidden mobile suit. Sending Bernie and Al to go try to find it, while it's always good to have a backup, was really completely pointless. Was really just get these kids out of our hair. We have this handled. We have a guy. Mm -hmm. We're going to have you do a thing that is entirely unnecessary. And that sense of like all of this planning and preparation and drilling and skill and expertise absolutely falling apart on the first confrontation with real chaos pervades the episode even in small ways. When the Kempfer attacks and the Rhea defense forces deploy, we get these quite extended scenes. A lot of time is spent showing the preparation, the response, all of the soldiers getting into their helicopters or their chibi mobile suits or their little like mobile missile launchers. And it's not just that, but also you know, there are the guys waving the sticks to tell them how to take off. Like, we see how much preparation has been made. The trail of civilians in the background as they uh, evacuate these neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but that entire sequence just filled me with dread. I think it's meant to. Because they are so obviously outclassed and unprepared for the kind of attack that is happening to them. They are so obviously sending most of these dudes to their deaths. Yeah. And they know this and they tell us this. The Rhea defense officer is like, we're equipped for anti-personnel and maybe anti-tank combat. We, we don't have stuff to fight mobile suits. And the Federation does not care. The Federation is going to defend its interests and its resources, not Rhea's. From the Federation's perspective, this just emphasizes how much Rhea needs to rely on them. And there may be some larger political maneuvering. The security treaty may still not be in effect. Legally, the Federation may not feel comfortable deploying. They do anyway, eventually, but you know. We can feel these undercurrents of how this is really just a small conflict within the larger war, within the larger politics of it. We see that on the Xeon side, we see that on the Federation side as well. It's like a war contained within some like small pocket. Hey, that's the name of the show. What? No way. Is this use of pocket a thing though in English? Or is it a, an oddity of 
switching from Japanese to English or... I'm honestly not sure where the name comes from. It feels like the sort of phrase that could be... <laughs> I, <laughs> that could be real or could be entirely made up. Yeah. It's always difficult. Like, the title of this episode is, in English, it's Over the River and Through the Woods. And in Japanese, it's very close to that. But in Japanese, there was a pop song in 1985 that has, an, I think, identical title. And so to us in English, it sounds like this is a reference to like over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go, which is like a classic Christmas time, Thanksgiving time song. But in Japanese, the reference might be completely different. And I'm, I'm not sure what a Japanese person in 1989 would have thought seeing this title. Speaking of the politics of it, previous Gundam shows have touched on the idea of news as propaganda, but never as it directly related to children. And the scene of Al and his friends in the classroom is so powerful. Fascinatingly, Part of its power is that neither group of kids is correct. <laughs> you know, Al has missed, what, a week of news and has been up to his eyeballs in, ooh, cool Zeon. But I very much uh, feel for him when one of his classmates says, where have you been? Zeon's the enemy. And he's like, what do you mean enemy? It's like, what does it mean for a neutral colony to have an enemy? Mm-hmm. When the local news says that Xeon violated a treaty, what did they do exactly? Well, I assume they're referring to the two times Xeon forces attacked this particular colony. Right. Though they're already hosting Federation military right. forces. That's, and that's so... the other half of it. Who was Xeon attacking? And were they supposed to be there? Right. You know, did... Did Rhea technically break the treaty first by allowing Federation presence? Or mm. do they, quote unquote, not know anything about that right. and retain plausible deniability? Most of what the kids say sounds like the kind of propaganda you get in wartime. Xeon are all scum. I tried to listen to Telcott's line a few times to figure out exactly what it is he says, because I don't think it's actually elitist. I, I thought I heard him say something like, Zen mean warui, which means they're all bad. Like, they are all bad people. All Zeons. <laughs> which mm -hmm. just, like, cannot possibly be true, <laughs> but is the kind of thing that you say. I mean, especially when you're a kid. Well, but he's, he's parroting his mother. He's repeating what he's hearing at home. It also struck me how quickly his friends turned on him, how quickly Al's little gang just started ganging up on him instead. They make the point, he has been a bad friend recently. He doesn't hang out with them. He doesn't spend time or talk with them. He's basically been ignoring them in favor of spending time with Bernie and the Cyclops team. Which they naturally think means he's started hanging out with uh, Dorothy, the girl who sits behind him. And also means they feel less... Loyalty? Yeah. It may only have been a week, but there's suddenly this sense that they don't really know what he's up to, and he's been acting weird lately, and they don't really know him and so 
why would they give him the benefit of the doubt when he is totally out of step with everything they're hearing and everything the TV says and their parents say and probably their teachers and all their other friends? Yeah, yeah. Well, a very great gulf has opened up between him and his old friends in this short period of time. And clearly Dorothy sympathizes or she wouldn't try to help him. And for all that he says, don't help me, <laughs> you're not helping, it's probably better for his friends to think he has a girlfriend than for them to think he's a Xeon sympathizer, seeing as how uh, things are turning the other direction. Yeah. He has gotten better at drawing Zaku, though. The one he draws in this episode is much more realistic. His drawings of all the Cyclops team <laughs> are yeah. so good, even if the ones of him and Bernie are the least good. <laughs> Terrible likeness. To talk a little bit more about the members of the Cyclops team who, in this episode, basically all meet their ends, we get a lot more characterization of them throughout the preparatory stage. Clearly, they all attended the infiltration and espionage seminar where they were taught that the best way to hide is just to look like you belong there. Too bad Bernie skipped that lesson. But for the rest of them, they just so cheerfully and naturally fit into these roles. I love the little kiss that Garcia blows to the bomb after he places it. I just love Garcia in this episode. He goes from just seeming kind of creepy and scary to suddenly having all of this other character to him, like this dressing down of Bernie, where even though he's not the commanding officer, he's the one yelling. He is the one who is the most emotional about this. Misha is like, ah, oh, well, he shouldn't have done it, but also no harm done. Let's move on. Steiner is somewhere in between. Well, Garcia but, is Garcia is the youngest of right. the others. I think he's the most scared. Yes, that, that others... is, in fact, where I was heading <laughs> with <laughs> this comment. Because the next interaction between him and Bernie is them preparing. He is checking over the guns and making sure they're all loaded. Bernie is taking out the body armor. Garcia notices, like, oh, you've never worn body armor before, have you? This is new to you. It's like, I like having a junior around. And he physically has to turn away from Bernie so that he can say, don't get killed out there. Like, he can't say it and look at Bernie at the same time. <laughs> I'm sure we're going to talk about this more when we talk to Matteo about the animation in this episode. But in these dialogue scenes, there isn't all that much like character movement as, as is normal and natural for a dialogue scene. But there is way more than there needs to be. They could have gotten away with a lot less. And through small actions like Garcia turning away there, it conveys so much more than the dialogue can alone. And Bernie is obviously touched by this in that moment. Like I anticipated early on, he's been around long enough that they're starting to feel some attachment to him. And then at the end, he tells Bernie, you know, cover me, but then take the captain and get out of here. Try to get someplace safe. He goes on the suicide run. And part of that may just be because he thinks he's more likely to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> and he's already been wounded. Right. And I think more than any of that, once they're actually doing it, for Garcia, the fear goes away. You can tell that that's not the case for Bernie. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in the scene where they cut a hole in the shutter 
Um, He's so tense. Yeah, Bernie just like white knuckling his pistol. But yeah, once the action starts, Garcia is in it. He's full of adrenaline, but he's relaxed. Whereas Bernie never really loses that sense of tension and fear. I should note, Garcia says he's going to destroy the mobile suit and he takes like one landmine to do it. I assume what he actually intends to do is put that in the cockpit. And if not destroy the mobile suit, then at least destroy its important vital internals and prevent it from being used. All the most expensive and hard to reproduce parts of it. Right. So it is, in fact, a good plan that Garcia has here, even though at first glimpse, you might think there's no way that could have done any major damage to the Gundam. That also explains why he has to climb up that ramp and onto the scaffolding, because if it were just a matter of getting a bomb close to it, you could throw it, you could, <laughs> or or put it just near the mobile suit and use the mobile suit for cover. But if he's trying to get at the cockpit, he can't do that. I assume Bernie is from Xeon, and that's the accent <laughs> the guard can hear in his voice. But this guard. <laughs> is so unfamiliar with Xeon that he thinks the accent is Australian. I mean, if I encountered someone who was speaking English with a funny accent I didn't recognize, Australia is a pretty good guess. There was a throwaway line back in First Gundam about the Xeon accent, so I assume that is being referenced again. Like so many other events in this episode, Bernie's lie creates this additional suspense. This uh, mm-hmm. It really ramps up the tension because we are all sitting at the edge of the couch going, is that guard going to figure out that you just up Earth geography and that, of course, it's summertime in Australia at Christmas. There wouldn't be any snow in Sydney. What are you talking about? You lying liar who lies. (laughs) So I didn't make that connection immediately, but I can vouch for Nina that the first time you watched this episode, immediately after Bernie said it was snowing in Sydney, you were like, no, it's not. So (laughs) I made some rather silly geography style mistakes when my family first moved overseas and I first like met some Australian people (laughs) and had no idea what I was talking about and got schooled and I was very embarrassed. Uh, And so it's burned into my memory. Oh. (laughs) I was 10. What did I know? You were just about Al's age. Yep. So yeah, (laughs) I was immediately thinking, wait a second. (laughs) Do you think perhaps that the shocking events Al has witnessed will be burned into his memory? And decades later, he'll still be thinking about them. Alternatively, someone will ask him someday, hey, what was your childhood like? And he's like, you know, I really don't remember. It's all just a big black box. No idea what happened. Do you know anybody like that? Moving on. (laughs) Even before that happens, we get the scene of Steiner and Misha making their final preparations for the battle. Misha is emptying a bottle of whiskey into his flask. Steiner is uh, standing on top of the Kempfer and smoking. I highlight this because some of our patrons pointed out on our Discord that while Steiner frequently has a cigarette in his mouth, he doesn't smoke them. And in the scene when Bernie first meets all of the commandos, Steiner is like 
going through the motions of chain smoking. He is pulling out a cigarette, putting it in his mouth, stubbing it out, and grabbing another one, but he is never smoking them, suggesting that the guy is trying to quit, or has more or less successfully quit. His decision then to light the cigarette in this episode and smoke does the same thing as Misha then saying, we who are about to die. He knows this mission is not going to end well, and so what's the point in quitting smoking when he knows he's probably only going to live for a couple more hours? So they're all indulging their vices, the like one character vice that has been identified for each of them from the beginning. Um, for Garcia, is that stabbing some dudes? No, um, he's polishing his rifle with a big old smile on his face, uh, which feels euphemistic to me because they can't show him doing what he would actually want to be doing. <laughs> Fair. The doctor who Al meets, when Al comes in, the doctor's already giving an interview to someone else who's trying to call him out on all of the suspicions that there is military research being conducted at this facility. And he makes kind of a flippant comment that is sadly pretty accurate, which is, well, toasters and cannons have technology in common. Basically that all research is military research if you want it to be. And I don't know how true this is in Japan, but in the United States, various military agencies are some of the biggest funders of all kinds of technological and medical research. Yeah. They give a lot of grants <laughs> to a lot of universities and partner on a lot of research. On, Especially robotics. On seemingly non-military applications, but with the intent that it will prove militarily useful. And one gets the impression that Professor Lumumba is doing what a lot of research and development scientists do. He is taking the military money to work on a military project so that he can also advance his own passion project, which is these small-scale artificial limbs. And he talks about the sensitivity of the controls, and the sample one that Al is using is slightly larger than a person, it looks like, or maybe about person-sized, and he can pick up and move around blocks with it. But it immediately made me think of, you know, now, 30 years on, a little more than 30 years on, we have tiny robotic arms with which we can do microsurgery. That is a technology we have. Japanese doctors practice using those controls by folding tiny origami cranes with the little probes and little knives at the ends of these, you know, not quite microscopic, but extremely small robot arms. Mm -hmm. We're seeing in our own lives the fruition of that technology. And we didn't even have to build mobile suits to get there also want to point out they've given Professor Lumumba the last name of a famous Congolese independence activist who was assassinated. I think the RIA defense commander is based on the Vichy French officer Captain Renault he from looked, Casablanca. He looked very familiar. Yeah. Honestly, I Dr. Lumumba too looked super familiar, like I'd seen a character with almost that exact same design in a different animated show, but I mm. cannot place him. And then the Federation commander, who I think is named Major Stewart, I think he's based on General Montgomery, the British tank commander from World War II, who 
always wears that particular kind of beret and has that same kind of mustache. I've got two more story events, character things that I want to talk about, and they make such a juxtaposition. This painful contrast between happy, safe, quote-unquote normal life and life at war. Bernie very cleverly sees the lights on at Chris's house, thinks, I'm not going to try to sneak Al into his house where his mom is sleeping. I will just leave him at Chris's. Chris's parents are awake but have already gone to bed. They have a little interaction. They tell each other it's okay to use first names, which is a pretty big deal. (laughs) And as Bernie walks away smiling... Chris's parents look out the window with kind of knowing expressions on their faces, right? Chris is an adult. She's a working young woman, but she does live at home. This young man who they've met and had a pretty favorable impression of comes and visits late at night. They clearly get along. You know, they're keeping an eye on this budding relationship that their daughter has. They seem pleased. They seem fond of this kid. And it feels so normal. Mm hmm. The way he, as he's walking away, when he passes the parents' window, he sort of breaks into a run for no reason except that he's so excited by Chris telling him that he can use her first name. This small intimacy. I loved that. It, um, I have felt that way. I have walked away from a date that went well and been so excited that I started running afterwards. And then throughout the battle itself, throughout the fight, I kept thinking, was that Al's neighborhood that just got hit? Has Al's neighborhood been evacuated? Al's mother must be so frightened, so worried about him because she doesn't know where he is. He's just missing. And she has maybe had to leave their home without knowing where he is or if he's safe or anything, and he might go home after this and find there's no home to go back to. Yeah. Even beyond the speculation, we know that his school has been hit. (laughs) By the local forces. (laughs) That is another throwback to First Gundam, when those wire-guided missiles they were shooting hit everything except the target. I have a few more things I want to say about the final fight and the way it's presented. There is a huge focus on what Al specifically sees, his perspective, his viewpoint, his reactions to things, which really grounds the fight emotionally for us because we know him and we like him and we understand how he feels about it. So his responses to things condition how we respond emotionally to events that happen. It's like how Sometimes seeing a person crying about something can get you more than the thing itself. But it's not just Al. We also get other characters whose responses to the events in the battle allow us to better understand the flow of things. This is why they keep cutting to the Federation commander as he gets reports about what's happening. It allows the show to put into words, in an elegant way, the way people are feeling about what is happening. I would also like to point out when the Kempfer draws out that whip made out of explosives, it's very reminiscent of the goof. 
and is part of the reason why I think the Kempfer may have been originally designed as an update to or a, a more modern take on the goof. It also reminded me of that episode in First Gundam with all the magnet bombs that the guys in the little mm, mm-hmm. geeps, <laughs> air ge- <laughs> that the guys in the little air geeps put all over it. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think it is. I think they are magnet bombs. Mm-hmm. So he whips it and they, they stick to the outside of the Alex. And then they blow off all that extra armor, revealing the Gundam's true form within. When the Alex deploys its wrist-mounted guns, which, by the way, I'm such a sucker for wrist-mounted weapons like this. Anyway, it's a claustrophobically close shot on the barrels of these Vulcans. When they start firing, the whole screen shakes. The gun shakes. Chris in the cockpit is shaking. And of course, the Kempfer is shaking as it's getting hit. It conveys the overwhelming power of this weapon so effectively. And the light, the muzzle flash, is so bright, it's blinding. It's very different from the way the rest of the fight has been depicted, and that adds to how hard it hits. Even those moments feel tied back into Al's perspective. Not that attack specifically, but the explosion that immediately precedes it, the explosion in the exterior of the colony, the juxtaposition in the animation of Al bracing his body, but his clothes whipping around him, the amount of movement in his clothing, even as his body is still. And the detail in that scene that a little bit of his t-shirt remains tucked into his pants, but the rest of it is whipping around in the wind, conveys the sense of falling apart. Messiness. Yeah. It's the good stuff. Now, we, like the episode, have ended in rather a heavy place, so I would like to talk briefly about something that's just kind of fun, which is the maps that the Xeon team uses when they're planning out this attack. This is the scene when they've got, like, a computer and then three, like, wired remote controls that the guys are using to control their future PowerPoint presentation. But the maps they're using are real maps of cities on Earth. When they show the location of the factory where the Alex is being hidden, that's just a map of Vienna. (laughs) The streets are labeled. You can tell what part of Vienna that's in. The factory with the Alex is in a block just slightly northwest of the aquarium. There's currently a small park there and an (laughs) H&M. The Federation-controlled buildings that surround it are like a kebab place and a block of flats. So sorry to the people who live at 12 Apollo Gasa. Your home is probably going to be destroyed in this episode. The hole that Garcia blows is in the middle of a playground in the Esterhazy Park. But then when they show the vertical slices of the colony that uh, Misha is going to be flying through and fighting in, That's just Manhattan and a bit of Jersey on one side. They mention 18th Street. And they've they've like sliced it so that it is actually rectangular, which means they've just like cut off a bunch of streets and Central Park has been cut in half. Whatever. One of the bridges is listed as the Williamsburg Bridge. Yeah, that's not (laughs) where that goes. (laughs) But now I'm just imagining the people tasked with designing the interiors of colonies, whoever the urban planners are, picking all their favorite neighborhoods from cities all over the world yeah. and just plunking them into the colony. Mm-hmm. 
The Xeon base where the Kempfer is hiding is in what is now Hudson Yards and at the time was more of an industrial district. So very fitting that there would be warehouses there. The street that Misha is like hightailing it along is, at least on the map, it's supposed to be West End Avenue. Even in space, they got to find ways to destroy New York. Once I started living in New York, seeing scenes of New York's repeated destruction in movies started to get to me. Leave, go, leave New York alone. Go blow up some other city. This week, we are very excited to be joined by anime fan and historian Matteo. Matteo, welcome to Mobile Suit Breakdown. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Uh, as a longtime fan and listener of the podcast, it's really <laughs> great to be talking to you. I assure you the pleasure is all ours. I know you do quite a bit of writing around the subject of anime and old anime history. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the different projects you're involved in? Yeah. So actually, outside of blogging, I'm a, I'm a student in film studies. I'm currently doing a master's degree in film studies. And on the side, I write about um, anime mostly on my own personal blog, uh, Animetude, and on a blog which is run by a friend, uh, which is called Full Frontal, which uh, experienced Gundam fans uh, will recognize. <laughs> I'm mostly interested in old anime, between quotation marks, so roughly from the 60s to the 90s, mm -hmm. though I try to keep up with the times. And actually, uh, right now I'm working on uh, Studio Tatsunoko, uh, Tatsunoko Productions, so the first 15 years of the studio's existence, roughly, mm -hmm. which does have a connection with Sunrise at the end. So even though I won't be talking about Gundam, uh, I will mention Tomino quite a bit. Oh, great. Uh, and we'll include links to those various projects in the show notes so that our listeners can find them more easily. I have to say, I'm also quite happy to be here, not just because I'm a fan of the podcast, but because I've been wanting to do stuff on uh, Gundam, but I didn't quite get to it because I felt like I didn't have the material or the expertise, but uh, having to write on Charles Counterattack uh, pushed me to, to do it. Well, we received a lot of very complimentary messages about uh, the research piece that we did for Charles Counterattack based on uh, your notes. So people definitely appreciated the perspective that you helped us bring to that movie, and we are excited to have you for this miniseries. Let's start by talking about 0080 as a whole. Uh, mostly today we're going to be focusing on episode four, but before we get into that, I'd like to get your thoughts on 0080 as a comprehensive work in this particular moment, both for anime and for the Gundam franchise. The one thing I have to say is that the way 0080 is perceived, uh, I believe, among animation fans in general, I think I've heard that from Japanese fans as well, but especially in the outside of Japan, the idea is that it doesn't have that much good animation. Uh, it looks great. The character designs are great. Visually, uh, it's great. But um, outside of certain specific scenes, it's not that well or that consistently animated. And I had that impression as well. Uh, I watched it uh, a few months ago for the first time, and that was the, the thing I had in mind as well. But rewatching it to prepare for the podcast, I realized that this is completely wrong. <laughs> um, I, I think the animation is very consistent uh, in the sense that 
it really drops to a level of where it just stops moving or the way it moves is awkward or badly drawn or anything. Mm-hmm. And when it does move, when there is actual effort and time put into the animation, it works really well, especially in contrast to the TV versions of uh, to the previous uh, Gundam TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course, this is an OVA, so the working conditions and the schedules are better. But there isn't that much like a big mecha fights in this one. Mm-hmm. And so there's a focus on character animation, which was kind of, I feel, not the place where most efforts were put into in previous uh, Gundam TV series. But here it really shines. And it's one of the things that make WAT exceptional. Can you speculate as to where you think that reputation for, I don't know if I want to say bad animation, but um, not particularly impressive animation comes from? Yeah, I think it's mostly the fault of uh, of character designer Mikimoto Aruhiko, mm-hmm. because basically the reputation uh, that Mikimoto has is someone who makes great character designs, but designs which are impossible to animate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because of how detailed they are? Yeah, uh, 0080, I think, is really a tough one because, I mean, just look at the characters' faces. Uh, mm-hmm. What strikes me the most in the designs, especially Al and Bernie, you just look at Bernie or Al's eyebrows. Like, they're so detailed, they're so <laughs> complex because the line is very uh, curvy and uh, there's lots of detail to, to show every single hair and things like that. Yeah, they have a lot of texture. And this is hell for an animator because you have not only to draw this once, but you have to draw it multiple times and make it move. Mm-hmm. And so it's really hard. And all the lines, the, the wrinkles on Steiner's face or Misha's. Yeah, and on the clothes and all that stuff, which is why Mikimoto, uh, I don't think he worked a lot on TV series after Macross mm-hmm. because he himself and other people probably realized that You, you can't animate this kind of design on, on a TV production, but on movies and OVAs, you've got more time and so you can do it. Yeah, you can make it work. And uh, on 0080, it really works. One thing about 0080, there's a sort of unity in the designs between the characters and the mobile suits because the mobile suits that Izubuchi turned in for this show are also incredibly detailed, way more so than... Uh, mobile suits from the TV shows were. Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that's one of the luxuries uh, you can afford when you're on an OVA production. Yeah. I don't know much about the actual uh, budget and production schedule they had, because I'd be really interested to know how it overlapped or followed uh, Charles Counter-Attack. But um, the two productions in terms of, even though the, they're really different in terms of design and mecha design and uh, just bigger means and more time and more ambition uh, than to really follow each other. It's interesting then, given how similar the two are in many ways, to look at differences between the way Char's Counterattack and 0080 are uh, realized. Yeah. Well, in terms of, um, first in terms of plot, obviously, it's really different. And I think 0080 is uh, not, not just in terms of animation, but also in terms of direction and where it takes uh, Gundam. It's really, uh, let's say, a game changer, <laughs> not just because it's the first non-Tomino Gundam, uh, mm-hmm. aside from the SD shorts, but um, there's a, a sense of really a new perspective. For example, that's the, the first Gundam in which the, the concept of new type uh, really isn't relevant. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, of course, the daily life setting, or at least the fact that we're focusing on the civilians' lives. Uh, 
on a much higher degree. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, in terms of animation, uh, it's also really different because to go back to the initial topic, which was double eighty in context, so to speak, 1989 is a really fascinating year. Uh, I think it's this period of basically late 80s, early 90s in anime history, in the evolution of aesthetics. Uh, it's a really fascinating time. Mm -hmm. Basically, you've got a big change in styles and in generations of animators. You've got the rise of what's called the uh, so-called realist school. So basically, animators uh, who mostly worked together and met for the first time on uh, Akira, so in uh, 88. Mm -hmm. And as I discussed a bit in my CCA piece, uh, you've got Charles Counter-Attack in parallel with people who will join the realist uh, group very soon, around 89 uh, or 1990. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a new generation of very young animators who are basically ready to, to take on the world uh, because after Akira, you've got a uh, not very well-known OVA, uh, but which is really important, which is uh, Gosenzo-sama Banbanzai by uh, director Oshi Imamoru uh, with lots of people. Basically, most of the staff that worked on Akira plus uh, some guys from 0080. Uh, and then uh, you've got Oshii's work, so Pat Labour 1 and 2, Ghost in the Shell, uh, all very big movies with, to put it very succinctly, very good animation <laughs> and very good animators. Mm -hmm. You know, you've called out many of the anime movies that sort of formed the vanguard in the United States of the big projects that created an attitude of like, oh, anime is actually really good. Akira and Ghost in the Shell in particular were, even when I was just barely getting into anime, those were lauded as like the best animation that had ever been in the world. To back up just what I said, I, I want to insert a first quote because I recently had an interview with one of the members of that uh, so-called realist school. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, it's really great because, well, to give you the, the full story, so Iso Mitsuo, the guy about uh, whom we'll be talking a lot uh, soon, is directing a new show. And uh, with the team of uh, Full Frontal, we want to know more about it. And so we asked uh, one of the animators who's working on it, Inoue Toshiyuki, which is a longtime friend of Iso, and um, one of the most important realist animators and a super nice guy who is also very interesting because basically he's also an animation critic. Mm. Uh, he talks a lot about animation history and other animators in a very interesting way. Mm -hmm. So in the course of our interview, we basically discussed uh, his relationship with Iso, uh, which is why uh, I had him talk a bit about uh, 0080. But yeah, on this, uh, like new generation rising, he had a, quite an interesting thing to say on the, basically the period just after 0080, so with Pat Labor and Ghost in the Shell, so early mid-90s. Mm -hmm. So to quote Inoue, at the time, the realist generation was around its 30s. By then, we began to have enough experience and we were able to draw things we wanted with a certain freedom. End of the quote. So it's like these animators who started working in the mid-80s uh, around 85, 86, who start getting enough maturity to work with ambition. And 0080 is really interesting in that sense because you've got some old generation, some veteran Gundam and Sunrise animators on one hand, and on the other hand, you've got younger artists who really challenge uh, the way animation was made until now, and it really works. Uh, I have a possibly silly question as someone who doesn't know as much about animation, but is the 
realist style any more labor intensive or expensive to produce, or is it sort of a purely aesthetic difference? Yeah, it is more more complicated, which is why、um, the animators of that group mostly worked on movies. For example, Inoue is the quintessential movie animator、uh, in that he very rarely worked on a TV series. His career is almost only、uh, movies and OVAs. Uh, because that style, well, as we'll see, it puts a lot of focus on detail and fluidity, which means more drawing and more time spent drawing. So, of course, on a TV series with very tight schedules, this is the kind of thing that you can't really afford. Okay, yeah, because one of the things that I had read about when I was researching OVAs was that the bubble economy of the late '80s meant that a lot of studios were flush with cash, and so you got more of these high-budget OVA projects. And that, to some degree, maybe having access to those additional resources helped the realists start to take on those ambitious projects. Yeah, yeah, it's always very complicated because you, you've got the issue of budget, which is how many money do you do you have to give animators, but you also have schedules because fundamentally it's about time.、Mm-hmm. Because well, to to get pretty technical and boring, not all cuts are paid the same. The more complex ones are paid more. So, for example, an action scene will earn you more money than a dialogue scene、mm. because it's harder to animate. Basically, so you've got that to allocate to your budget. But fundamentally, the biggest resource you have to to spend、uh, wisely is time. Because if the animator doesn't deliver their cuts、uh, on schedule, however much you pay them, if you don't have the animation, you don't have it. Yeah, I、uh, I remember reading back when we were covering, I think, the transition from Zeta into Double Zeta. There was an article that interviewed a whole bunch of different animation luminaries in the industry around 1986 or 1987,、um, and it was asking them about what the big problems they saw in the field were. A couple of them who were at the level of being sort of chief directors or producers were saying that the real problem they were having was just finding animators. And that what they blamed for that at the time was this wave of sort of Western-designed but Japanese-produced animated shows like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or Transformers that just paid better. They paid better for easier work, and so all the animators were going to work on projects like that. And it was very hard to get people to do something like Zeta Gundam. Yeah, I I remember that one. Especially in the mid '80s, with the so-called OVA boom and all that stuff, you've got people doing their passionate projects on OVAs, which is cool, but doesn't necessarily pay much because it's small studios, small productions. So you end up with great stuff sometimes. To take a, a modern release that people talked about a lot, you get stuff like Project Echo, but I don't think they earned that much money. But yeah, it looks awesome because they had the passion. They probably had lots of time. So yeah, it's it's always a complicated issue. Also, the problem of、uh, we're making too much anime or we don't have enough animators is,、uh, let's say, it's a recurring complaint、uh, from <laughs> <laughs> from within the industry. Yeah, part of the reason I was so struck by that article from 1987 was because I had recently read an article from like 2019 where a different anime producer was complaining about the exact same problem. Except this time, it was that everybody was going to do animation for mobile games. Yeah,、uh, 
actually, while researching Tatsunoko, I found uh, someone talking about the 70s and using the very same argument, uh, saying <laughs> we're making too much anime. But uh, there, the solution he gave was that, well, at the time, uh, we didn't have enough animators, so we subcontracted stuff to Korea, and that's how it worked. Mm-hmm. That's how we ended up with, uh, let's say, more or less imperialistic uh, practices with overseas uh, outsourcing studios. So mostly Korea and the Philippines and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's a, an entirely different topic, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but always a worthy one. And of course, one of the problems this caused for OVAs is that a lot of OVAs just stopped. They didn't finish. The studio would produce one or two very good looking episodes. And then if it didn't get popular, they would just stop making it. Yeah, that too. Which I guess we're very lucky didn't happen to 0080. Although with Sunrise backing it and the Gundam brand on the line, it would be surprising if they would. Yeah, I I think that uh, at this point they were confident enough in the project. Like it's the 10th anniversary thing. uh, It's our first OVA, uh, stuff like that. They were confident enough in pushing it. Do you have a sense for how it was received at the time? No idea. Uh, I wish I had. <laughs> it's hard to find any uh, discussion, uh, animation-focused, let's say, discussion of 0080 that doesn't uh, just focus basically on the scenes animated by Isomitsuo, mm. which brings us back to the reputation thing I talked about earlier, which is basically uh, the OVA is good, but uh, in terms of animation, it's not really worth it, except for the scenes that were animated by Iso, uh, <laughs> which is a thing. But, uh, you know, that's how these reputations happen. And Mm -hmm. the the best thing we can do is uh, to show it's not the case. Unfortunately, I think we're going to be mostly talking about scenes animated by Iso Mitsuo today. (laughs) So we're we're actually going to be contributing to that problem. But I hope all of our listeners know that it is a problem and uh, everybody out there should watch the other scenes, too. Yeah, yeah. uh, Which, in fact, kind of brings us back to Mikimoto. I think comparing 0080 and the concurrently... uh, airing, so to speak, OVA Toponerae Gunbuster is really interesting. So for those who may not know, uh, Gunbuster, I think it started in 88, is an OVA uh, directed by Anno Hideaki and produced by uh, Studio Gainax, which is also a mecha anime, but very different from uh, Gundam, which also had character designs by Mikimoto Aruhiko. Uh, and the episodes came out roughly at the same time as uh, WAT. So we can assume that at least the second half of Gunbuster's production was at the same time as 0080's production. And there was some overlap between the staffs of the two projects, right? Yes. Uh, so mostly Mikimoto himself and uh, the general scriptwriter for 0080, uh, who is Yamaga Hiroyuki, so one of the founders of uh, Studio Gainax. As is well known about Shars Counter-Attack, there were a lot of uh, connections between uh, Sunrise and Gainax. Mm-hmm especially uh, through Anno Hideaki. And spoiler alert, but also teasing, we're going to find that connection again uh, on Victory, uh, where it becomes really very interesting. But uh, to come back on W80, it's mostly uh, Mikimoto, Yamaga, and one animator who worked on episode four, which uh, will interest us, who is Honda Takeshi, who debuted as a key animator on Gunbuster. So you've got at least this connection. And... um, Basically, what I wanted to say about Gunbuster is that it's a good example of Mikimoto designs are impossible to animate because the OVA looks great and you do have some very good moments of character animation, 
but it's quickly apparent that Gainax animators weren't experts in uh, character animation. Uh, basically, you only had the famous character designer Sadamoto Yoshiyuki, who would go on to make the designs for Evangelion, who was an uh, animator and animation director on Gunbuster. And what he did really looks good. <laughs> but aside from that, basically characters don't move that much because they're difficult to move. Mm-hmm. Whereas on 0080, you've got very experienced Sunrise character animators, people who were trained uh, sometimes on the original Gundam or on Tomino's later series, and then went on to work on Shah's Counter-Attack. And these guys had experience. They knew how to animate uh, complex character designs. And so they made it work on 0080, which as a result, you've got an OVA that is much better animated, so to speak, than Gunbuster. In terms of character animation, mm-hmm. uh, because if we talk about mecha and uh, other stuff, it, it's different, but it's a different metric. Sure. And I think um, the character animation in episode four is particularly good. When Nina and I were watching it for the first time, there were many moments when we were so delighted by the way a particular person moved or the expression that they made in a particular moment that we had to stop and comment on it just as we were watching it. So. Yeah, mm, mm. I think episode one is, on all fronts, it's really good. Then two and three remain very good. Uh, but yeah, with episode four, it goes back to that great level of quality. Even though, I, I don't know what was your feeling about this, but the episode is very distinctly cut into two parts. And mm. I think it's really interesting how the first part is mostly build up. And so in terms of animation, it doesn't move much because it's a lot of dialogue scenes. And so even though the drawings are beautiful, of course, people and characters don't move much because they don't need to. Whereas in the second part, of course, you've got uh, all the fighting scenes. And so there it moves a lot. And yeah, it it always moves uh, very well. I hadn't noticed it as much on my first watch through, but watching through the episode a second time and keeping an eye more on the animation exclusively... I did notice a lot of scenes were like, oh, okay, nothing is, there's a pan here, but nothing is actually moving. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I would like to step in in defense of the show on this point. Oh, I don't um, think it looks bad. No, no, I'm no, not no. saying that. Just I, Not only does it not look bad, I think it's essential for making the episode as a whole work as well as it does. Because um, I think what this episode does so effectively is to create an overwhelming sense of tension before the battle starts to use these long periods of relative stillness to create the tone that is necessary for the episode to work as a whole. I think the battle would not be exciting if the beginning were not so slow. I think you're totally right. This episode is really good in terms of structure because it's really got this uh, war movie feel. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, you've got all the setup, all the strategy, I think. And also this wider context as you feel uh, you feel the tension, but also uh, an impending sense of doom as, you know, some people say, yeah, uh, Zeon is going to lose the war and uh, this is a suicide mission and stuff like that. You feel progressively that things are, are not going well and then it explodes uh, in the second part in a, yeah, in a, in a really great way. In particular, I want to point out the scene where Steiner is standing on uh, top of the mobile suit, the Xeon Kempfer, and he's smoking, and he's motionless. He's just standing there like a statue, but we do see the smoke moving a little bit. (laughs) And that scene is so effective 
for conveying that absolute dread of what's about to happen. Mm. You mentioned uh, just a moment ago how good the animation is in the first episode. Uh, do you want to talk now about the Arctic base attack scene? Yes, let's. When I mentioned uh, earlier that the OVA is known for the scenes animated by Isomitsuo, one of them is uh, the Arctic base attack. To recap basically who did what and to situate a bit uh, Iso's role on the OVA, basically Iso was a freelance animator who had worked on uh, Double Zeta previously and then was recruited to work as an animation director and then key animator on Charles' counterattack, which is probably how he earned enough uh, trust and knowledge from Sunrise people to have him take such an important role on 0080 because Basically, he was animation director, uncredited, but that's what he did, animation direction on the entire Arctic base attack, plus most of the animation by himself. He also designed the interior of the cockpits of the mobile suits, so all the, all the shots at the beginning of the team uh, in their cockpits <laughs> and doing their stuff. The insides were by ISO, at least in terms of design. I don't know if he <laughs> animated it. So he did all that on episode one, and then... From episode four onwards, he was key animator on every episode, but uncredited. Whereas episode one is the only one where he's uh, actually credited. Can you speculate about why an animator might be uncredited when they're doing so much work on so many episodes? Most of the time, it comes from the fact that they're working on another project uh, at the same time. Mm. And that they're tied by contract not to work elsewhere. Most of the time, uh, this is what happens with... Uh, with Toei Animation, because uh, Toei uh, as a studio is uh, very not nice towards its, its staff, <laughs> to say it kindly. So, for example, on Charles Counterattack, uh, Iso was working on uh, the series Gegege no Kitaro by Toei, and because he was under contract with Toei to work on Charles Counterattack, he had to use a, a pseudonym. On 0080, more precisely, I don't know what exactly was the other project he was working on. But uh, if we look at uh, the timeline of his career, we may uh, get some good guesses. At that point, Iso wasn't uh, very famous, especially because he had done a lot of work on Charles Counterattack, but under a pseudonym. So, of course, nobody knew that was him. His work on 0080 is really what made him famous uh, for animation fans and other animators, to the point that he would very quickly be integrated into those uh, realist circles I talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. By the end of the 90s, he was uh, recognized as one of the greatest animators in Japan. Um, to give an impression of the immediate impact of uh, Iso's animation, there's uh, a nice anecdote by Inoue Toshiyoki, him again, who basically talks about how uh, he was invited by another animator who had worked on uh, Akira, Utsunomiya Satoru. Um, so Utsunomiya invited uh, Inoue and a bunch of other animators who had worked on Akira to his house, basically to watch anime. And he showed them the first episode of War in the Pocket, which had just come out at the time. And by the end of the, of the Arctic base attack, according to Inoue, everybody was basically speechless. And then Utsunomiya said uh, something like, oh, here's a new genius who's just appeared. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's a stunningly amazing scene. I feel like our reaction is not dissimilar, even though so much time has passed. Yeah. Yes. And you said that almost the entire Arctic base scene was animated by just this one person. Yeah. That's astonishing. Isn't it? <laughs> Actually, there were three. But from what I've seen, um, it appears that Iso 
directly animated, at least I'd say the two thirds of it. So yeah, uh, a lot. Wow. <laughs> so maybe we can discuss what makes uh, his animation special. I'd love to discuss that. Besides the fact that it looks good. <laughs> the first thing is that when discussing Iso, it always starts or comes back to Iso's technique. So his way of doing animation. It's pretty confusing because it's got different names in Japanese and English, uh, which don't really translate to each other. In Japanese, it's called Furu San Koma, so full three frames. But it doesn't mean anything relevant because the three frames isn't really relevant to Iso's animation. And in English, the expression was coined by uh, animation expert Benjamin Ettinger. It's called full limited animation. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, which is supposed to mean that yeah, it's beyond uh, full animation and limited animation, and it's something completely different. Can you describe what it is? Yeah, I'll try to keep it simple. But basically, in animation, you've got this distinction between key drawings and in between drawings, with the keys being like the most important steps uh, in a given motion. But uh, with only key drawings, you don't have the full motion to have a something that's relatively fluid, or at least for there to be some, some semblance of continuity between each of the keys, you have to add drawings, which are the in-betweens. And in the process of cell animation, uh, the key animator does two things, which is one, to draw the key drawings, obviously, and the other is to plan for the in-betweener where each in-between frame uh, falls in. In terms of timing within the, the cut? That's it. And so the, the key animator draws and directs, in a way, the in-betweener. What Iso started to do uh, in the Antarctica base attack was to basically stop using the services of an in-betweener. The simple way to present this is to say that, okay, but in that sense, Iso just does the in-betweens himself. But that's not really correct in my view, because by not using in-betweens, Iso, in fact, kind of erased the difference between in-betweens and keyframes, mm -hmm. because that difference isn't just a difference in terms of uh, workflow and pipeline, but it's also a difference in importance. Of course, the keyframes are going to be more important and they're going to carry the movement in a way. But with ISO not using in-betweens, another expression that's used is that all frames are keyframes. In Japanese, they call that zengenga. It's all keyframes, <laughs> which means that basically ISO has a, an unprecedented amount of control over the animation. He's got more control than anyone ever did before him. Mm -hmm. If you look at animation history, you have a, a tendency to, to reduce the role of the in-betweens so that the key animator has more control. That's mostly a thing uh, someone like Kanada Yoshinori did. He placed the in-betweens in such a way that they basically weren't visible, but he still used in-betweens. Whereas Iso went one step further and just said, okay, let's not use in-betweens at all let me have total control over what happens. I'm glad that you highlighted the word control there, because when you first described it, my initial thought was, oh, that would make the animation so much more fluid. But of course, only if the animator wanted it to be fluid. If he wanted the animation to be herky-jerky or stilted, then this would give him the control to do that instead. Exactly. He's not bound at all by, by basically anything. And although the animation in, in the Antarctica base attack isn't not fluid, there's definitely, I feel, a, th a feeling of things being jerky or very sudden or not moving very freely mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the time, which is what makes his mecha animation so good because you can feel each part moving independently from the others. It's, it's very mechanical 
in a way which is good for animating mobile suits. Though I know you ha you've had that debate <laughs> <laughs> of whether they're animated like uh, like humans or like machines, which I think is very on point. Well, thank you for saying so. That um, that that sense of total control over how the things move would be essential for making the Xeon aquatic mobile suits move gracefully and fluidly and yet still convey their sense of enormous size and scale while giving the Federation's mobile suits a much more robotic kind of movement. Actually, before hearing you dis discussing this issue, what I had in mind was that another thing ISO did is to operate a paradigm shift in mecha animation, because basically until then, of course you have exceptions, but going uh, pretty fast, until then you have this idea that animating giant robots is basically the same as animating people, except they're bigger, and you just have to <laughs> add a lot more lines on top. <laughs> uh, to take a, a completely different example, if you take a look at the work of mecha animator Obari Masami, who was a big mecha animator in that time, late 80s, what he did when he drew uh, robots, he drew them with a human face and with human features to get a, a feel of, of the body of the robot, and then he added uh, all the mechanical stuff on top. Mm. I feel that Iso didn't do this. From the start, he went to not necessarily to animate them like machines, because as you said uh, in episode one, the, the way they behave and, and feel is very human. But on the other hand, he had a lot of care in the, the very detailed workings of uh, the mobile suits, like the cables, the parts that detach and move uh, somewhat independently from each other at a rhythm slightly different from each other. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a feel for how it works as a machine. Well, and, and sort of pointedly draws attention to it as a machine. Yeah. Really highlighting that aspect of it. Mm -hmm. hmm. Yeah. To cite Iso from the interview he gave in his uh, Key Animation Works uh, book, uh, he talks a lot about this and to take one of the significant moments of the interview, I quote, even the arms of a mobile suit, if they were actually there, they would be huge objects of about 10 meters and several tens of tons. But if you don't know what you're drawing, it will look like it's about 30 centimeters long. If the arm is 10 meters long, it has to be drawn as if it is 10 meters long. End of the quote. So hmm. he's already cared about like this sense of scale and the arm of a mobile suit is, is big and it's, it's got lots of cogs and stuff. So you have to animate that and imagine that. In another quote, Iso said that he animated the mobile suits as if they cost more than 10 times his own salary. <laughs> <laughs> Part of what drives home that sense of scale, both in the Arctic base attack and in episode four during the fight between the Alex and the Kempfer, is that the perspective is usually at the ground level on the level of a human, not the level of a mobile suit or the level even of a pilot most of the time. That's maybe one of the things uh, in which WAT innovates from uh, Tomino's way of let's say, directing these fights. And although it's hard to tell exactly who did what, of course, Iso may be to blame, at least partly for this, uh, because he does mention uh, making suggestions, I quote, seeing things while animating and suggesting to the storyboarder and episode director, suggesting changes in the storyboard. So we don't know mm. what changes exactly, but given the way he speaks about the importance of scale and the gigantism of these machines, it's probable that he had at least some influence into pushing into that direction, showing things from the ground level. 
Well, I think it's fantastic, and I, I salute him for doing so, if indeed he did. Is there anything else you'd like to say specifically about the Arctic scene? I've talked about the mobile suits. There's another thing, which is his uh, explosions and effects, mm. which had a lot of impact. It's customary to name techniques after the animators who are said to have used them for the first time. And after 0080 came out, you had the ESO explosion terminology, which started to appear. And uh, we'll see its influence uh, in future Gundam series. I'm not saying anymore, but <laughs> even though ESO didn't work on any Gundam after that, his influence uh, really carried on. How did the ESO explosion differ from prior explosions? The way I say it, it's like uh, how dense it feels. Hmm. If you make a sort of lineage of uh, explosions in Gundam, uh, which is a rather niche topic, I know. <laughs> One that I'm sure our listeners would be very interested in, though. You begin with Yasuhiko's style in First Gundam, which put a lot of focus on the smoke effect. Like when you've got an explosion, you've got the fire and you've got the smoke. And what Yasuhiko started to do was to um, kind of merge the two uh, so that they would be uh, more or less indistinguishable, mm. which is a style that, that more or less disappeared in uh, Zeta and Double Zeta because you've had uh, another style of animation, except for one artist, which is Shigeta Atsushi, who is important because not only did he work on 0080, but he's also said to be one of Iso's uh, teachers or inspirations, at least. And Shigeta's style was similar in that it tended to merge the two and have the smoke feel very round, like adopt these uh, very round shapes and feel very dense. But what was special about Shigeta's style, which you notice in WAT where when you compare the scenes he might have animated with Isos, is that Shigeta used a very line-focused approach. Like, for example, he would make, he would use black outlines to make a difference between different levels of smoke or different kinds of density or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And Iso didn't use that. In his style, uh, it's only color gradients. So it feels much more organic, much denser, uh, as if it were solid, basically. And the fire part of the explosion almost completely disappears under the smoke part, um, which seems to expand as if it had like its own internal energy. The explosion has its own life, which feels really unique, mm -hmm. as if it were basically morphing uh, into new shapes. I'm looking at a scene right now of the Kempfer being hit by some missiles fired by one of the Rhea Defense Force ground batteries. Mm -hmm. uh, and the smoke is billowing sort of in exactly the way you described. So I, I think it may be one of those uh, ESO explosions. And it gives the whole frame a feeling like a painting. It's beautiful, but the density of it is so powerful. It feels like I'm looking at a, a Van Gogh, perhaps. <laughs> My greatest uh, sadness is that I don't know exactly where Iso's part uh, starts in episode four, because he was animating apparently in close collaboration with uh, Shigeta. They knew each other well, and they knew each other's style well. So they probably kind of imitated each other. So it's, it's hard to say all the time which is who. Mm -hmm. But yeah, this it's, it's really a unique style. It feels, I don't know how to say it, but it feels great. It's, it's got a, a, a unique feeling yeah, of life. I do know what you're talking about, and it's, it's always hard to give words to those feelings that the art stirs within you, mm. which is why the art is so important. If we could just use words, we wouldn't need anime. <laughs> that's, that's a very Tomino-ish thing to say. <laughs> 
I want to transition now to talking about episode four more specifically. Um, and to do that, I want to highlight a curious framing technique that I noticed in both the first episode and the fourth episode um, used quite prominently, which is we get multiple scenes of something in center frame, totally flat to the audience and coming towards us. It's the very first shot of the OVA when we're underwater and we see the Xeon submarine coming out of the darkness. In episode four, it happens repeatedly when the Kempfer is racing down the city streets. It's coming directly at the uh, the audience. When the young soldier realizes that it would be summer in Australia right now and runs through the hallway, it's framed identically. And then again, when Chris is running through the hallway to get to the Alex. It's such a specific thing. It feels like it has to be coming from the same person. But I don't know who in the production that person might be. Probably the storyboardist, right? Probably. Yeah, I, I'm looking right now. Um, <laughs> but I had noticed it on episode four because uh, you've got a lot of echo effect uh, within the same episode of, for example, that shot of the Federation soldier running, and then you've got Chris running in the exact same shot. Like, there's a lot of these echoes, uh, like repeating the, the same kind of shots or, or, the, or the same kind of cuts and stuff like that. So I, I had noticed it on episode four. I hadn't on episode one, but uh, apparently it's, it's Takayama himself storyboarding both episodes. Ah, well, then Nina was right. It probably is the storyboard <laughs> artist. Yeah, it, it, it may be his thing. That comment you made about the echoing in this episode is fantastic because as soon as you said it, I started thinking of many other examples. You know, Al watches the fight at the end through the same window he was taking pictures through at the beginning. And part of what makes the fight between the Kempfer and Scarlet team, those gyms and gun cannons who try to stop it, so effective, I think, is that every location where they fight was shown earlier in the episode. In the A part of the episode, Bernie and Al are walking along this uh, embankment, and it's the same one where we later see the Kempfer fighting. We see those shots of the city streets all decked out for Christmas. We see the school, and then later we get to see all of these things destroyed. And this isn't, strictly speaking, an animation thing, but that really speaks to how good the editing, I guess, is in this, the, the overall construction of the episode and then the way that it was uh, put together. Uh, yeah, in, in terms of editing specifically, I was really hit by one specific um, transition, which is the very beginning of the, let's say, of the attack. It's around uh, 16 minutes. Like, you've got a shot, uh, a close-up on the on the hands of that professor who's working in the, in the fake uh, or real uh, medical center. He's talking with Al and you've got a close-up of his hands. And then it transitions to, uh, I think it's Garcia killing a, a Federation soldier with the very same close-up on the hands, but it's holding a knife and just killing someone. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a lot of thought put into this very clearly. That is a remarkable transition because of how shocking it is. The transition from the two different moods um, strikes the viewer so heavily and primes you for the chaos that's about to unfold. Yeah, especially because it's a, it's not gory, but it's a sort of very physical body-to-body -body violence that you don't necessarily expect. You expect the mobile suits fighting and uh, stuff like that, but mm -hmm. straight of murder uh, shown that brutally and that closely is the most surprising. I like that you brought up the gore 
because the way they choose which moments to be gory and which moments not to is very interesting to me. The gunfight in the room where they're keeping the Alex is huge gouts of blood when people get shot. It's quite bloody. But then at the end, in the fight between the Alex and the Kempfer, we never actually see Misha wounded. We see that the Kempfer is full of holes and that his flask that he always keeps there and that we closely identify him with, that the flask is full of holes and is dripping liquor, and then just his hand still clenched on the mm -hmm. mobile suit's controls. But there's this restraint where they don't show us a corpse. They don't show us a bunch of blood. I think this is an example of how what you don't show is at least as important as what you do show. You know, the fight between the Kempfer and Scarlet team is over very quickly. We see only flashes of it, like more mobile suits launch than we see the Kempfer destroy, but we know that it destroyed all of them. And it forces the viewer's imagination to fill in the details, saving time, money, and carpal tunnel syndrome for the animators. But uh, it works. It works very effectively when it's done well. Um, that scene at the end with the flask perforated by 90 millimeter Vulcan rounds and uh, dripping a little bit of liquor is so, it's so much more sad than if we actually saw Misha's, like, mutilated body. And like you brought up talking about the structure of the episode as a whole, it's the contrasts that help make it impactful. If everything is gory or if nothing is gory, it's not going to have the same impact as if they, they sort of change how they show that violence. And from an overall narrative perspective, that's why you have to have the scene of Al talking to the roboticist about these artificial arms and how you know, these are things to make human lives better and easier and to make people happy, and then the mobile suit fight. And uh, also, I think it's interesting from the point of view of perspective, like from whose perspective are you showing this? Because neither of the persons involved uh, can actually see what's going on in, in the campus cockpit because Misha is dead. Uh, Al doesn't see who's piloting, and Chris doesn't see what's going on inside the camphor either. So you can't show what's going on inside because the storyboarding and the filmmaking are very stuck on showing the perspective of the person involved. And so showing mm. the insides of the mobile suits would be kind of breaching that principle. That's a very astute point. I'm struck by how un-Tomino the editing and the direction for this episode is, especially when you contrast it directly to Char's counterattack. Because in Char's counterattack, scenes cut very abruptly. Nothing is given space or time. And uh, sound effects and dialogue are constrained to the scene in which they actually appear. Whereas in this episode in particular, dialogue runs over the end of its own scene and into other scenes uh, as do sound effects. It blurs the lines about the timeline. It blurs the lines between the two scenes and it makes everything feel like a more cohesive whole. Which is really important because of the fact that different events happen at different places, but at the same time. And so you have to coordinate all that without losing the viewer, which, and the fact that mm -hmm. the episode succeeds in doing that uh, in, the, in its second half shows it's indeed really well-constructed and directed. 
one bit that stood out to me that I'm a little curious about your reactions to, uh, Tom brought up when Chris is running to the Alex, and there's one shot where she's running toward the viewer, and then there's another where the viewer's watching her from behind as she runs into the smoke. And in that scene, I found the way she was animated to be almost exaggeratedly feminine. Like the way she runs and the position of her body and the way her body moves felt exaggeratedly girly. (laughs) They give her a certain um, wiggle that doesn't feel appropriate in this context. (laughs) Yeah, I I see what you mean. Um, Personally, I'm very struck by the the shot where when you see her back and she's just still for like a a few seconds. And yeah, she's got mm-hmm. this very convoluted pose, uh, which yeah, I, I think uh, ex- exaggeratedly feminine is a is a good assessment. <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe the explanation is once again uh, that we have to blame Iso Mitsuo. <laughs> uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm sure he animated uh, the fight between the Kenfer and the Alex, which is just after that. And I I am pretty confident in saying that he may have animated. Uh, these specific shots. And one of the things that makes Iso's animation special at this time is yeah, the way he tends to exaggerate the movement, uh, having the characters uh, adopt like kind of convoluted poses that don't feel very natural, but are always highly expressive. And so there in that case, yes, it's a bit exaggerated, but you get to feel for, let's say for Chris's physical presence, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though that means overacting. What's special about Iso's character animation here is really overacting. I think, Nina, you pointed out that the Alex adopts some of the same mannerisms. Mm. That sounds right. I mean, it's something that I... <laughs> you definitely said it. Okay. Uh, it's something that I've noticed throughout War in the Pocket so far. Occasionally, they pose the mobile suits sort of in parallel to or in a reflection of the way they've posed human characters. And so it would make sense. <laughs> I hadn't noticed it, but yeah, it's really interesting. And it shows like it's a care for the way you draw and animate mobile suits uh, that you don't necessarily find in other productions because you have to actually think about it and take care to do this. Whereas to stay focused on Tomino, I don't think he, at least in the works before that, I don't think he put that much uh, thought into how we should animate mobile suits most of the time. Even though, of course, they have great uh, thematic significance and Domino thought about that and there's a lot of discussion, uh, explicit or implicit, in the shows, but it doesn't necessarily translate uh, into the drawings themselves. Mm -hmm. Matteo, when you mentioned that Isol was the one who designed the cockpits for the Xeon mobile suits in that Arctic base scene, it makes me think that he must have had a sense of the mobile suits as reflecting their pilots even though they are these separate massive machines, that they are also a reflection of this person who spends all this time in them and who gives them life in a way that hadn't come up in any of the other Gundam so far, even though, like, of course people decorate their cockpits. It feels like such a natural choice, but nobody had done it before. Mm. And of course, the Kempfer kind of looks like Misha. Mm. Stocky. Yeah, physically in terms of its proportions, it resembles Misha far more than any of the other characters. Uh, And in this episode, we see the Alex in actual combat for the first time, Chris in combat for the first time. Um, And there's this whole 
a production built around the extra armor plating falling off, mm. revealing the mobile suit within as Chris is revealed essentially to the audience as the pilot that she really is. Which means, of course, that Al's campaign to get Bernie to be the pilot of the Kempfer was always doomed oh. because they would either need a skinnier mobile suit or Bernie would need to start hitting the gym. <laughs> You had said that Iso works on the next couple of episodes as well, similarly uncredited. Uh, yes. Does he work on any future Gundam projects after this? No, this is his uh, farewell to Gundam. Ugh. Yeah, I know. And in a way, his farewell <laughs> to Mecha Animation, because, uh, well, spoilers for not Gundam, but spoilers. Uh, the animation he did on Evangelion, which he's uh, most famous for, aside from his work on 0080, spoiler, they aren't really Mechas. So it's not mecha animation. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I think that's the the last prominent contribution Iso made to mechanical animation, or at least to robot animation, uh, which did leave a deep mark. Uh, so that kind of speaks to his genius, because he does just a few episodes in that style of uh, mecha animation, and then never does it again. But everybody after that feels that they have to do it the same way or completely differently, but this happened, and so you can't act as if it didn't. And that is a tremendous legacy to leave. Um, I think I want to ask two questions before we close out today. First is, Iso's style of full limited animation made such a huge impression on the people who saw it. Did it create a movement? Were there other animators who did the same thing afterwards, or was he really just one of a kind? Mm. In terms of style, you start seeing Iso's influence very quickly in everywhere. But in terms of technique, so in terms of that full limited thing, um, it's pretty complicated because as far as I know, nobody uh, claims or claimed to have done it after Iso. So I don't think he had many imitators in that sense. Mm -hmm. There are animators which I guess um, do it like Iso, but I can't be sure and I've never heard or read them mention that, uh, yeah, we're doing things like Iso did. So in that specific aspect, he didn't have that much uh, of a legacy. But in terms of style um, and, yeah, of the way he animates, he definitely had one. And my second question would be, you know, we have only two more episodes with Iso working on Gundam. How would you recommend we look at the animation in the next two episodes in order to appreciate it as much as possible? Mm. That's a good question. <laughs> That's a pretty fundamental question as well. <laughs> it's hard to answer. Uh, to be quite honest, in episode 5, there's one of my favorite ESO scenes of all time, and it's pretty easy to notice because it looks very, very different. It's clear that at this point, uh, the the animation director decided that uh, will, they would let ESO do his thing. <laughs> but in terms of yeah, how to watch uh, more generally, I can't answer you. That's... Uh, but that's a really interesting question, so I think about it. I feel like that's the fundamental question of like film studies. How do I watch the thing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, then we leave it as a question for the audience. How do you like to watch uh, anime in order to best appreciate the animation of it? Uh, and Matteo, maybe you'll have an answer for us the next time you come on. I hope so, and I'd be very happy to come back. Well, this was a lot of fun. I feel like I learned a lot, uh, and we'd love to have you back. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks to you guys.
the men who go away to war come home different if they come home at all. To victory, life or death. Some rest on foreign shores or frozen plains in heaps before some towering wall. I feel this war is going to end very soon. Dying with the light when the war is already lost. Giving their last breath to the burning sky in the sunset of some distant dream that was never theirs. You guys are decoys. They're playing you, you're just here to locate the Gundam. Those lucky few bound for home in ships made heavy by missing oarsmen. Proud, bearing the war within themselves. They land their ships on some strange beach in peaceful waters, these peaceful islands. It's a nice colony, isn't it, Charlie? The land of the Cyclops, the sand of Polyphemus. Now men of war slip into the giant's cave, eager for treasures, armed for murder. If we can't steal it, then we will just have to destroy it. But the one-eyed giant traps them there, killing them day by day. By intrigue, they wound him. He'll be a decoy, right? In disguise, they slip away with sorrow in their hearts, leaving bodies behind. I'd run if I were you, Steiner. All those would-be Cyclops slayers. And the wounded giant, crying curses to the heavens, let them not see their homes again. And for their captain, let him end in disgrace. All his wartime honor washed away in the sea, all his efforts come to nothing, let him be friendless. Let him cause the deaths of all his men. The men who go away to war come home different, if they come home at all. Next time on episode 5.6, Fight or Flight, we research and discuss episode 5 of War in the Pocket and... Shoga Aru! He's not on the run, he's forest bathing. Laugh to keep from crying. Don't get it twisted. Getting drunk on $3 whiskey at an airport lounge, as is tradition. Technicalities. Special Gundam use blankie. Cruel to be kind. That fit is pure Sharaznable. And no comment. Can't you see that you are sweet? Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Pieces of Life by Analog by Nature. The music used in the Requiem for the Cyclops team was Unveiling Soul by Evgeny Tilor. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, Additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, 
or by email to gundampodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. With the Omicron variant of COVID-19 currently surging in New York and around the world, I can't in good conscience encourage you to share your wrong Gundam opinions, not even on deserted street corners. So stay home and mutter your wrong Gundam opinions to yourself or your most patient roommate, family member, pet, gunpla model, or kitchen appliance. Maybe something like, yeah, 0080 is good or whatever, but what a wasted opportunity to have so many good mobile suit designs appear for barely seconds apiece. This show should have been twice as long with three times as much time devoted to fighting. We won't hear you, but that's for the best, isn't it? Well, the, the, the Zaku isn't exactly uh, very thin either, so it kind of fits him. Uh, I forgot the word. Excuse me for a second. That's course. okay. Uh, uh, the, the eyebrows. Sorry. Mm. I kind of don't think so. I don't think so either. But it was a... It was a fun thing to think about for a couple of minutes just then. I wonder about basements. Mm -hmm. Because I would think as long as you like put curtains over the walls or or like foam or whatever, that you'd get less sound from outside. But I don't know if you get a lot of like reverb through the ground. Yeah, well, um, in the country, I think a basement would be a great place uh, unless you got radon poisoning. In the city, though, we've got the subways. Right. What if we developed a complicated system of mirrors so that we were both in different rooms, but it always looked like we were looking directly at each other? We could just video chat. What if we built a uh, skeleton with glowing red eyes from which our voices emanated? So this is very fun, but I have 16 minutes. Okay, let's do it. I think that was a sufficient warm up. It's warmer. I can put my feet close to the radiator and keep them toasty. Do you mind bleeping me? Can I just... Go ahead. <laughs> I had a moment of like, ah! We got a Facebook message from Kelly Freeze's widow, supposedly. What? She's claiming, yeah, just a hi. I saw your mention of my late husband on your website. FYI, artist Bob Eggleton and I are producing his next book. A book to be published next year of his artwork. Wow. (laughs) I hadn't thought of it, but once you say it, it seems so obvious and brilliant. Oh, I like to be brilliant. (laughs) 